Good afternoon and welcome to Living Permaculture on KDNK. I'm your host, Vanessa Harmony, here with my co-host, Jerome Osentowski. Today, it's our great pleasure to introduce Eric Tonesmeyer, co-author of the two-volume series, Edible Forest Gardens, author of Perennial Vegetables, Paradise Lot, The Carbon Farming Solution, and now the newly released digital book, Trees with Edible Leaves, a global manual. Welcome, Eric. Thanks. It's great to be here again, so, so to speak. <laughs> yes, and uh, just for our listeners, Eric was uh, an intern at Crimpy in 1993, I believe. Um, and I remember you you did a lot of journaling, uh, and so that's where you got uh, your experience to write all these books that you've done. And now you basically have a lot of the books that we want to use in our agroforestry school. And we already have the textbooks, and you've written them. Thank you. Well, thanks. I've been working hard on them out here. They're a lot of fun. And I, a lot of it's I remember sitting around at Grimpy and reading the the old salt manual, right, the sloping agricultural land technique, and these other um, guys you had that really uh, inspired me to do what I do. And I remember uh, while you were there, I went down to – I was working on the project down in Nicaragua, putting in that two-acre demonstration alley cropping, and mm. you guys built the first – uh, terrace gardens, forest gardens with river rock right across from the composting toilet. And I remember yeah. you guys blew out my, my rear end on my brand new truck. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Those rocks are very heavy. Yeah. 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 Anyway, that's, uh, that's a story. Anyway. Well, uh, I remember when you were here, uh, I didn't realize that goji berries were in the valley. And in the old timers must have brought them in because there were a couple places we visited where they were just uh, whole banks of them and uh, I was just getting started growing them and I found it was very hard to get them started for the couple of first couple of years and then they just are amazingly aggressive uh, and they certainly are yeah and what's nice about them is not only the berries are edible and delicious but the, the leaves are edible and we find that we sell a lot of the plants. So all of the perennial plants uh, are a gold mine because digging them up in the spring, potting them up, and then selling them at plant sales. And then also they grow from root uh, divisions and also from uh, hardwood cuttings. So um, Goji is not hard to grow. Once you have it, it's easy to propagate for yeah, sure. And it, yeah. it grows on some really, really poor soils. The species we grow here is Lyceum barbarum, but the species you discuss in your Trees with Edible Leaves book is Lyceum... Genensi. Yes. Which sometimes people consider them the same species at the moment they're split. The, the big difference is that the leaves of Chinensi are a lot wider and much more tender and much better eating, although some of the uh, barbarums, I think, have good leaves, too. But the chinensi, the, the fruit isn't as good, but the leaves are better. How would one prepare the leaves? Hmm. Um, I just use them like I would use anything else. I put them in soup or I put them in uh, stir-fry or in scrambled eggs or in fried rice. Or salad. They have sort of a... Or salads. I, I eat them raw for sure. Uh, they're... Um, 
They're uh, sort of mustardy, maybe, a little bit. Does that sound right to you, Jerome? Kind of mustardy flavor. Mm. Not not mild, but milder than some. Um, milder than a real mustard, for sure. And I tend to pick the whole tender shoot about um, six to eight inches long when it's still flexible and bendy with the leaves and the shoot, and I'll cook that whole thing up. Right, Save could... time over picking all those little leaves off one at a time. Uh, we dry a lot of it because during the summer it's so prolific that you can strip off the leaves, put them on a drying rack mm-hmm. along with our nettles and uh, other stuff that we dry, mints, and uh, I throw them in my teas. Uh, I'm doing mint, uh, licorice, and um, nettles right now. Um, I, I've got bags of dried goji berries. so And they're, uh, th- that would be a cash crop, actually, because they're very oh, yeah. sought after uh, in the... Uh, the tea uh, business. Yeah. Another cold in climate. China, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say in China, the um, uh, goji shoots are a traditional part of the New Year's um, uh, cuisine mm. in the south of China. And Ooh. they're used in Chinese medicine, I'm sure. I'm sure, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll have to give those a try. And another one we need to try that you discuss in your book is Morris Alba, Russian mulberry, which Jerome has a lot growing of in his forest garden. So we need to try cooking with those, Jerome. Well, I use them for my rabbits. And, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I'm, of course, I eat the mulberries. And uh, the, the Pakistani one we grow in, uh, in the attached greenhouse, the leaves are uh, they're eight inches in diameter. Wow. It's amazing that, the, and the fruit is about three inches long. Oh yeah, that's one of the good ones. Yeah, I, I thought. Okay, a couple tips for those. One is not every mulberry has delicious leaves. None of them will make you sick. But so the first is to sort of go around and see which ones um, have a good texture and flavor, and then um, uh, for for most of these trees with edible leaves, and, and certainly for mulberry. Um, the best thing is to, to coppice or pollard them. That is to cut them back very hard during the winter to, I like to do about three or four feet high. Um, that keeps the leaves in easy access for harvesting. And then they will, those tender shoots will continue to be tender and good to eat all through the season. So for me in Massachusetts, that means sort of May through September. And I've had them still tender in Reno, Nevada, which is kind of similar to you guys in some ways, cold and dry. Uh, as late as October, still good to eat on coppice plants. Mm-hmm. So um, that um, seems to be key. Just like you would see Jerome in the tropics with nopali cactus or chaya or moringa, it's the same, very same management strategy. And Eric, do you, when you're coppicing the mulberry, are you also producing fruit on those coppiced branches, or that is primarily when you're harvesting for mostly leaf not? You, mostly not. Yeah, if you're coppicing them that, that frequently, they, you may get a few fruit, but but um, or you may choose to manage them with. Um, I've seen some people do mulberries to save space, where they they prune them with three branches and they cut one each year. So there's always a mature one producing fruit and then two in between that you could eat edible leaves off of. Mm-hmm. Um, well, in your book, if you're little, yeah. there's about a dozen of the um, cold temperate plants that are suitable for our region, which is between zone four to zone six. 
um, a lot of which I'm not familiar with. Uh, which are you growing in Massachusetts? Sure. Let's see. Okay. So the ones I've grown for a number of years now, um, uh, the edible leaf goji, some edible leaf mulberry varieties, um, certainly. And then linden, which I know there's a lot of in Colorado, a lot of lindens in Colorado, um, uh, which have sort of a mild flavor and a somewhat slimy texture, but that makes them, they're related to okra. It makes them, or mallow, and it makes them a great addition to soups and stews mm. for thickening things up. Wow. And they're super easy to grow, and they're pretty shade tolerant, too. Yeah, I remember so we, ate some, one. we ate some down in Glenwood, because uh, it, it's a very popular tree in Glenwood, a street tree. Uh, you know, I've not grown it. I, I will add it to my arsenal. Uh, they like a, they like some water compared to some things, but um, they uh, they do very well. And they, and they like some shade. So let's see. Oh, then the other one that I really really love, my very favorite, is called Chinese Tune or Fragrant Spring Tree, which is uh, it's actually a relative of neem, the cold hardy relative of the tropical neem tree. Wow. Um, it looks like ailanthus. You look at it and you think it's ailanthus. It's one of these kind of urban, you know, um, street trees. Trees. Yeah. yeah. But it has, um, it tastes almost exactly like chicken soup. Unbelievable. Wow. Unbelievable, and it's incredibly nutritious. It's it's I, at first I didn't know what to make of a tree that tastes like chicken soup, <laughs> but now I love it. I'm planning. I just moved to a new farm, and I'm going to plant twelve of them here. I really, really like them a lot. Can you give um, us some seed, or uh, uh, we'll have to swap some it grows, seed. It, um, it grows from seed. Um, you can get seed from a couple of different suppliers. Okay. Um, it also grows really well from root cutting. Uh which is mostly what I do because they don't set seed for me because I cut them down all the time. Um, And um, in fact, they actually grow it from seed and sell it as a sprout in China. So it's got to be pretty easy from seed. I've not actually had the greatest luck, but we've got some from seed. So those are the ones that I've grown very, you know, consistently. And then I'm adding a couple of new, I also do some vines with edible leaves like um, grape leaves and um that um caucasian spinach and stuff um but i'm adding some new ones this year that i'm excited about i've got um um a couple of different species in the genus of siberian ginseng which are grown for their edible leaves and they're incredibly cold hardy they're really tough shade tolerant they're from siberia they're tough plants you know um so those are interesting. The, the varieties I have are a little strong flavored, but someone is bringing me some plants that are from um, uh, that are better flavored. So, well, you know the uh, astragalus. There, there is a variety that the Chinese grow for for edible leaves. And when they were here uh, putting the railroads together, they they use that exclusively. I used to have that variety. I have Mongoliosis. Uh, uh, you know, which we use for the root, drying the root. Uh, I have several, a dozen of those plants throughout my forest garden as understory, nitrogen fixing. Uh, yeah, we grow another one of those here. Um, oh, what is it? Uh, Glycophilos, the licorice leaf one, which is, um, you can make a tea from. Oh, another one we're doing this year, we're grow, I'm, I'm growing a few of these out from seed, is the one called Calopanax. It's um, it's in the Aurelia family. 
it's a big spiny tree with big kind of palm looking leaves on it that um is uh cultivated in um south korea and china and japan so i'm excited to try that i couldn't find anybody selling plants only seeds so i am Growing it out from seed, which will take a little while, I suspect. <laughs> but once these are, you know, once they're growing well, I'll be able to offer um, seeds and plants of these things and stuff through my website. Right. So I'm going to try and. Well, I ordered some. It can be hard to get some of these things. I ordered some edible. Uh, I would say I call it wild broccoli from you years ago. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a perennial broccoli, and basically, it's probably the mother of broccoli. It's probably where they. The, you know, the, they hybridize this particular plant to get mm-hmm. the broccoli that we have in the store now. But uh, it grows, uh, it's basically, uh, you know, gone viral in an area and, uh, and it has little broccoli. It's, it's, and if you have, they're really tasty. You can just, you know, saute them and, um, or just eat them raw. Um, and it has beautiful yellow flowers and then it goes to seed. Mm-hmm. So, it kind of looks like uh, you know a asparagus plant when it uh, you know when it goes to seed. Uh, that's another it's one. It's really that's... pretty when it's in flower too. We call that one Turkish rocket out here, or or perennial broccoli rob. It's got a nice you know uh, spicy mustard flavor to the broccoli's on it, and um, yeah. easy certainly easy to grow. You could say that for it. Yeah, and we it's next to some nettles that we have. We harvest a lot of nettles. I, uh, it's drying those. It's they're so nu- so nutritious during the winter to have a nettle, uh, licorice, and mint tea. You can throw anything else in there as well. Well, I'll take a moment to remind our listeners you're listening to Living Permaculture on KDNK. Um, and to come back to the nutritional properties, I want to emphasize why perennial plants are so valuable for food production. They're able to sequester carbon in their woody plant tissue, in their roots, and as they're building organic matter in the soil. They also provide habitat for wildlife and organisms. But you outline in your book the unique nutritional properties of a lot of these trees with edible leaves and perennial vegetables in, other, in your other books. But uh, you also mentioned industrial diet deficiencies. Can you elaborate on that? Sure. Um, uh, people in countries like the United States and now increasingly in other parts of the world as people move more and more to cities and start to eat more and more like Americans um, are missing some very important um, uh, nutrients in their diet like fiber, like magnesium, like uh, certain vitamins like vitamin A are are linked to um, some of the kinds of diseases we see here, like osteoporosis and diabetes and heart disease, things like that. Um, So um, not that eating some trees with edible leaves will, you know, cure you or even necessarily prevent it, but it certainly helps to get those things we're missing. And these trees, most of these trees, are um, exceptionally high in the, in the very nutrients that we're missing the most. The same is true of the tropical trees for uh, the kinds of deficiencies you find um, uh, in the tropics. So they're here right when we need them the most. <laughs> to, uh, so we go through in the book for species by species wherever the data is available. And I even did some of the testing myself on some of these um, to see what they, uh, 
how do they compare? And they're really, many of them, like Mulberry, for example, um, and Chinese Tune, are among the most nutritious in all the world's vegetables. I compared about 200 species in a paper a couple of years ago, 200 species of vegetables that we could find data on. And uh, Chinese Tune was the second best in the whole world. Mulberry is on the top 10. Um, so these are very nutritious. And many of these trees, as a class, trees with edible leaves were the most nutritious kind of vegetables. That's Even amazing. though the occasional one is not that exciting. A few of them are just okay. There's a few bummers in every group, but <laughs> by, by and large, they're outstanding. And I wonder if that's just because they have such deep roots and maybe because they're not so domesticated already. I don't actually know why. I just know that it is, it's true that they are, they have what you need for, in terms of what the average, average American is eating. I also thought it was interesting that there are a lot more tropical and subtropical edible leaf tree species than cold temperate species. Why do you suppose that is? Um, well, I think to some degree that's true also of like fruits and things like that, just there's more diversity there. But um, partly because this book is looking at the ones that are grown on purpose for those edible leaves. And I think that farmers and gardeners in the tropics have done a better job uh, bringing trees with edible leaves into their gardens and starting to grow them. So we have lots of trees with edible leaves in the United States that we could be growing. We just don't. Um, so there is room for improvement. Um, it's not It's not that we don't have good candidates. It's just that we're not doing much with them. But I think, generally speaking, our biodiversity is just a lot less in colder places. Well, in their backyards, uh, they will have these trees and, you know, they go back to, you know, their grandmother or something that was using these for medicinal qualities. So they have a culture of, uh, in Puerto Rico, uh, when we were doing our, our PDC there last year, um, it was an herbalist and uh, she's read, written several books on, you know, Herbal herbalism in the backyards and in, in Puerto Rico. So mm -hmm. it was just mm -hmm. like it, it's just more in the in their veins. But you know, um, Vanessa was going to uh, talk about how she got inspired to do permaculture, and it was through a talk that you did or a workshop you did. Oh. At, at uh, you want to say a little bit about that, and then the, the way you found up wound up here at, uh, in the valley. Yes, I have Eric Tonsmeyer to thank for changing my career path and ending up here in the Roaring Gosh, Fork yeah. Valley. I had begun my permaculture journey in 2011, and a year later, I took an edible forest garden gardening class with you, Eric. And that was when I had my aha moment that made me realize I was passionate about edible perennial plants, even though I had no experience working with them. And so I quit my cubicle job and uh, started an apprenticeship at Stone Barn Center for Food and Agriculture and a series of steps that um, led me to where I am today. But you had also mentioned your time working at Crimpy with Jerome and the type of person that might benefit from that experience. So you planted that seed, and in 2016, I ended up moving to Crimpy to start a an edible forest garden nursery, and I've been in the valley ever since. So thank you so much for inspiring me and spending your decades of work inspiring others. 
And then didn't you spend well, a, a I summer? I it up from Jerome, too, you know, so we're all passing it along yeah, out here. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. Just, uh, the, yeah. The, the web that has no weaver. Uh, but, you know, you also went and spent uh, some time with uh, Dan Barber at uh, Stone Barn. Didn't you do an internship there? Yes, I did a forest gardening apprenticeship there, and that was when I um, had to learn plants on short notice, learn how to identify plants, um, and Laura Perkins was my mentor there, and she's an amazing spirit. Um, and, and you made arrangements for me because I was going to New York to do a book signing and uh, some consulting just north of there, and you lined up for me to be there for an entire day, and I talked to the staff um you know at at stone barn and then i had dinner at that very fancy restaurant there dan barber has written a book called the third plate uh it's very fascinating uh, yeah. and uh that's an ongoing he has a restaurant in new york and also there it's uh it's very very uh well done and they have a big greenhouse and well hopefully they'll be adding some edible tree leaf species to their menu yeah. I hope so. That's one of my hopes with the book is if we can get to catch on with chefs, we're doing great. Um, they really do. People, there seems to be such a culture of uh, chefs being celebrities and people paying a lot of attention to what they're doing. So here are these kind of new flavors, which they're always looking for, that are super nutritious that have this climate mitigation angle. That, to me, seems like a great story for chefs to to pick up and run with. Oh, there's trees that taste like root beer. There's trees that taste like chicken soup. <laughs> oh, tell me more. You know yeah. <laughs> that seems like something they should want to get get involved in. And 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 we um we've done some tastings. Um, I I know the ones I grow, of course. But a, a friend of mine, Erica Klopp, who's a um very serious plant person in in South Florida, drove all over to different botanic gardens there and um, got. Uh, samples to taste and also uh, cuttings. Um, she was sort of the roving reporter for this um, publication. So she collected, I think, about 40 different species of trees with edible leaves from all over. Um, many of them are grown there as ornamentals, and people don't know you can eat them. So, And she really picked out a couple of winners that are outstanding flavor. <laughs> So she's getting a little nursery going down there. So she'll be the. And where does she um, live? Where does she live? She's in Naples, which is uh, uh, yeah. south of Fort Myers right. on the southwest coast. Yeah, where well, they got really hammered by the hurricane this last year. Right. You know, we actually are going to be working with Tim at Eacher Jacksonville. He's it's one of the nurseries farms that we're going to be doing our agroforestry school at, Great. which we're starting that. Great. This. Uh, this March, uh, on the 4th and 5th of March, we're going to be doing our first pruning workshop with Gabe Riley, who everybody knows in this valley. He's lived here. He's an arborist, and he's going to be leading a pruning workshop up at Crimpy Outdoors and on, uh, on the 4th and in indoors on the 5th. And then we're going to be doing a one-day on the 1st over at Danielle's orchard over in Paonia, which is about a 15-acre abandoned orchard that we're going to start pruning and turning it into a a more integrated alley cropping food forest. And your agroforestry school might be traveling to Eric's place, perhaps? Well, we're going to go to Michael Judd's area. We've got a couple of sites there in Frederick's 
Maryland, and um, we'd love to come up there and help you prune or uh, mulch or plant, uh, you know, some pine. I'm not, not sure we're ready to do it in the spring, but maybe in the fall we'll be positioned up there and we could send a half a dozen people uh, you know, I would love that. I have uh, about three acres of alley cropping going in this spring out here in Massachusetts. That, well, yep, or, which will be uh, very fresh and small, but still there. Or in future years, even more to more to see. But there's there's plenty to do this year out here. I suspect. Well, we're working with certain civil orchards in the Fredericks area that are similar. They've only been in there a year or two, and. They're going to need a lot of help, a lot of adding diversity, uh, weeding, and setting up different uh, different systems. And uh, uh, I think that uh, our our mo is uh, learn while you work. Uh, sure, sure. <laughs> well, uh, we are running out of time, unfortunately. I want to make sure people know where to find your new ebook. Um, you can go to sure. perennialagriculture.institute and navigate to blog. And there's a blog post from January 10th of 2023 where you can download the ebook Trees for Trees with Edible Leaves. And it's thanks to the generosity of Trees for Climate Health that this ebook is available for yeah. free. Eric, are there any other projects or initiatives that you and your peers are working on that you'd like our listeners to keep an ear out for? Oh, sure. Um, and let me say, oh, the, so the book's been out, I think, three weeks, and it has been downloaded 15,000 times already. Wow. So we're off to a very good start on that. Free, you know, it's free, but still, that's great. Um, and, uh, yeah, um, let's see. Uh, I will have um, my old website, perennialsolutions.org, will be up in the next week or two with the whole um, calendar of uh, events here on the farm and webinars and stuff. Um, I am uh, I'm on Patreon if people want to go over there and check it out. That helps support the work. And um, Erica and I, Erica from Florida, who I was mentioning, are working on a, um, a, a much smaller guide to the perennial brassica varieties of the world. So that's going to be very exciting. Mm-hmm. What about and the alley? There's so many of them. Yeah, there's an alley cropping book that uh, is coming out too soon, uh, Tempered Alley Cropping. We're- yeah. We do have an alley cropping book. We just signed a contract with um, New Society Publishers for that, and um, but it'll be a little while until it's done. We the, the part that's missing is um, uh, field trips. My co-author is going to travel um, uh, all over Europe and the U.S. and Canada to visit a bunch of sites and write up those case studies, which I think are going to be very exciting, very cool. Sounds good. But well, it's coming along. It's coming along. Yeah. <coughs> anybody wants to uh, sign up for the workshops or hear about our um, our programs, that go on uh, crmpi.org, the website. We'll have uh, we uh, we're going to have our next meeting with the county commissioners on the fourth of April at uh, El Jabel. We would love to have everybody there uh, uh, just to uh, hopefully get our special use permit. Approved to, so we can uh, teach permaculture uh, up at Crimpy. Uh, well, thank you, Eric Tonsmeyer, for taking time out of your busy schedule saving the planet to speak with us today. <laughs> well, thanks to you folks as well. And well, 
I'm sure I'll hop on again sometime, and it would be great um, if the school wanted to come by here sometime. We'd love that. All right. Thanks for coming on. All right. Bye, everybody. Oh, grandfather, tell me how it was when you were young. Was the world so very old when your life had...